Hey Conjurers, I'm Steph. And I'm Sham. The relationship between a wife and her mother-in-law can be difficult to say the least. Most find a way to bond eventually, and some even become close, but not all find this family peace. This is a case where a mother-in-law took possessiveness of her son to another level. This mother-in-law from hell wasn't going to let anyone take her mama's boy away from her. Elizabeth Ann Duncan was born in 1904, and even though very little is known about her childhood, it's said she was prone to lying, scamming, and cheating from a very early age. Much of the same continued into her adult life as well. She wrote bad checks, used false names, and spent a little time here and there in jail. She drifted in and out of several marriages along the way, in the end ranking up 16 ex-husbands. In some cases, she didn't even bother to divorce one man before marrying the next. In all of those husbands, she never married for love. She lured several husbands on the false promise of many coming her way. She told these men that she needed to marry quickly in order to inherit a large sum of money. She promised them half of the inheritance, but instead lived off of them for a while, then took everything they had and disappeared. She had six children, but often told people she only had two, her oldest son Frank and her youngest daughter Patsy Ann. She had no interest in the other children, other than her two favorites. In 1948, Patsy Ann died suddenly at the age of 15 due to a spontaneous cerebral hemorrhage. After that, Elizabeth spent a lot of time traveling, but eventually settled in San Francisco, California. Her son, Frank, wanted to go to law school, and she was determined to give him what he wanted. Elizabeth took a job as the madam of a brothel, which she eventually served 30 days in jail for, but it helped pay for Frank's education. 16 ex-husbands? Damn, girl. I didn't know that was legal. (laughs) It isn't. At least not the way she did it. (laughs) She's a real gem. And she just up and abandoned all her kids. Yeah, she definitely sounds like a real gem. (laughs) Yes. So, in 1956, 52-year-old Elizabeth and her 27-year-old Frank moved into an apartment together in Santa Barbara, California. To say Elizabeth and Frank had a close bond would be an understatement. Elizabeth's feelings for Frank were incestuous and obsessive. Friends remembered Frank always calling his mother doll, and they often lovingly promised each other, I'll never leave you, and held hands in public. A friend of Elizabeth's recalled once visiting the two-bedroom apartment and stated that you could see Elizabeth's bedroom from the living room. She claimed Frank was sleeping in Elizabeth's bed when Elizabeth walked out and smiled, looking back lovingly at her son and said, isn't he beautiful? It was during this time Frank began his career as a lawyer. Elizabeth experienced anxiety from the separation from her son while he went to work. So she spent the whole day, every day, at the courthouse to watch him work and be close to him. When he won a case, she was always sitting behind him cheering him on. If she felt like he was losing, she would secretly talk to the jurors trying to swing the results in Frank's favor. Despite his mother's controlling behavior and always being by his side, many said Frank was a very intelligent man and well-adjusted in society. 
Some of Frank's friends and colleagues noticed her intense hovering and suggested he should stand up to his mother and start on a new path to find love and at the very least his own place. That's so weird. We have all experienced or been around somebody with an overbearing mother, but she takes it to the extreme. I mean, he couldn't even go to work without her being there. Right? A whole new level of crazy mom. Their relationship is gross. Frank doesn't seem to be bothered by it, or he's a super pushover. Yeah, I don't think he's completely innocent either. He probably also had attachment issues to allow this to go on for so long. Most likely. Well, in 1957, Frank decided they were right, and it was time to strike out on his own. After all, he was a successful young man, and he needed to untie his mother's apron strings. He told her she needed to move out of the apartment. Elizabeth's reaction to Frank's declaration of independence was to have a complete mental breakdown and intentionally overdose on sleeping pills. She was taken to a local hospital and put into a coma. She survived and got the attention she wanted from Frank. Faithful love and dedication weren't sufficient to keep Frank at home with her, but a heavy dose of good old-fashioned guilt was just the trick she needed. Elizabeth calculated correctly, and Frank was by her side when she woke up from her coma. He spent every minute he could with her at the hospital while she recovered. During her recovery, Elizabeth was attended by an attractive 29-year-old nurse named Olga Kupchink. She caught Frank's eye. Olga had just moved to Santa Barbara from Canada and befriended Elizabeth while caring for her. Frank and Olga started flirting at the hospital and eventually started seeing each other outside of the hospital as well. Not surprisingly, Elizabeth took the news about Frank and Olga very badly. Elizabeth started calling Olga's house every day, telling her to leave Frank alone, threatening to kill her if she didn't. On one phone call, Olga told Elizabeth that she and Frank were going to get married. Elizabeth replied, you will never marry my son. I will kill you first. Olga didn't take the threat seriously, and she and Frank had a secret wedding ceremony on June 20th, 1958. While married to Olga, Frank was still living with his mother and would just visit Olga every day at her apartment. Okay, dealing with mother-in-laws can really go either way, but the most they do is throw a little sly remark your way every now and then. Elizabeth was straight up throwing out death threats. Death threats and he continued to live with his mom after they were married? Red flags all over the place. Oh, for sure. If I were Olga, I would not take her threats lightly. She shouldn't have either. One day, Elizabeth followed Frank when he went to visit Olga. She knocked on the door and demanded that Frank leave with her. Frank gave in and went home with his mother. The next day, she waited until both Frank and Olga were at work and went back to Olga's apartment. She used a ruse to trick the building manager into giving her entrance to Olga's apartment. She wanted to see if any of Frank's clothes were there. It's not clear if she found what she was looking for, but on her way out of the building, she told the manager, she's not gonna have him. I will kill her if it's the last thing I do. The manager realized that she had made a mistake and told Olga what had happened. A few days later, Olga moved into a new apartment and Frank moved in with her, but they did not tell his mother their new address. Soon, Olga was pregnant, and when Elizabeth found out, she was furious. As soon as she found out, she went to her longtime friend, Barbara Reed, and offered her $1,500 to help her kill Olga. She told Barbara that Frank was not the baby's father, and Olga was trying to trap her son. Barbara refused to help 
but did not go to the police. She did, however, call Frank and told him what his mother was planning. Terrified of his mother's threats, Frank decided to move back in with her to keep her happy, leaving his pregnant wife home alone. After Frank went back to his mother again, Olga wrote a letter to her father in which she expressed her exasperation for the whole situation. Part of the letter read, She came to the apartment and threatened to kill me and Frank. She cut up Frank's birth certificate and all of his baby pictures like a madwoman. She has not allowed Frank to live here. It was tragic at first, but now I don't even want him. Life is short, and I want to enjoy the rest of it. End quote. Olga was a strong, independent woman and didn't need this drama in her life or her baby's future life. She would rather be a single mother than continue to deal with this toxic family. As far as she was concerned, Elizabeth could have Frank at this point. That's completely fair and justified. This is also one of those situations where I think it's totally fair to not want your kid in the grandparents' care either. Elizabeth is old enough to be a happy, accepting grandmother, but she clearly doesn't even care about the baby if she's willing to kill it and its mother. Frank does whatever his mom wants and never stands up to her. Olga was a smart lady, and she wanted none of it once she realized it was never going to change. She had no idea Elizabeth was seriously out for blood. She thought it was just talk. You'd think that Olga backing down would be enough. You'd think. But in August of 1958, Elizabeth, not satisfied that Frank was back home with her, decided to hire an ex-convict by the name of Ralph to help her get Frank and Olga's marriage annulled. They went to the courthouse, and Elizabeth pretended to be Olga and Ralph pretended to be Frank. While in court, Ralph pretending to be Frank testified that Olga had not been living with him since they were married, and she never intended to have a real marriage with him. The judge ruled in Frank's favor, and the annulment was granted. Still not satisfied, Elizabeth went to her other longtime friend, Emma Short, and asked her to convince Ralph to take care of Olga permanently. Emma agreed to ask, but Ralph refused to kill anyone. Elizabeth asked more than eight different people to help her kill Olga. None of them agreed to help her, but also none of them went to the police about what she was plotting. Next, she went to her friend Diane Romero and tried to hire her husband, Rudolph, who was a past client of Frank's, to kill Olga. She told them Frank was being blackmailed by Olga and she needed his help getting rid of her. She offered them a good amount of money, so Diane went to Olga's house with the intention of scoping out the apartment. Olga let Diane into the apartment, and Diane recognized Olga as the nurse that had previously helped Elizabeth get back into good health after her overdose. Diane and Olga had a long conversation, and after the visit, Diane and her husband refused to hurt Olga. How is no one saying anything? Also, the amount of people willing to even listen to Elizabeth talk about murdering someone is scary let alone the people considering helping. Right? She must be one convincing person. She does kind of look like just a regular old lady, but seriously, she's talking about murdering a pregnant woman. I mean, she's determined at this point to find someone to do the job come hell or high water. Yeah, and a few months later, Elizabeth and her friend Emma went to a restaurant called the Traffico Cafe in Santa Barbara. They went to talk to the owner, a woman named Esperanza Esquivel. Her husband had also been a client of Frank's. Since she had gone to every case Frank had worked on, she knew the details of the Esquivel case. 
Frank had worked to get a dismissal for her husband when he was charged with receiving stolen property. She told Esperanza that Olga was blackmailing Frank and threatening to throw acid on his face. Esperanza said she knew some men who could help, but didn't know if they would talk to Elizabeth directly, so she would get back to her. They returned the next day because Esperanza had found two men to help Elizabeth with her problem. 21-year-old Louis Moya and 26-year-old Gus Balbondo were seasonal farmhands with extensive criminal histories. Louis especially was a career criminal in and out of prison since the age of 11 and was heavily into drugs. They all sat at a table in the restaurant and after hearing Elizabeth's story, they agreed to help her. The terms were the job had to be done within three to six months and they would get $3,000 each after the job was done. After agreeing to the terms, they then began to plan what would happen. Elizabeth told them that she had acid, rope, and sleeping pills if they wanted to use them. She suggested using the pills for an overdose, then tying her up with the rope, and then maybe using the acid to disfigure her face and fingerprints. Lewis and Gus didn't intend to be so dramatic with it. They simply planned to kidnap Olga and take her to Tijuana, Mexico, where they would shoot her. The men expressed that they would need some extra money up front for weapons, gloves, and transportation. Elizabeth sold some rings to a pawn shop for $175, stole $200 out of Frank's wallet, and gave it all to Lewis and Gus for their upfront expenses. Well, we all have a spare jar of acid lying around. <laughs> right? Who doesn't? <laughs> With how ready she was to offer her ideas, it seems like she really wanted to kill Olga herself, but couldn't overpower her or something. She had at least really thought about it a lot. Oh, I'm sure she did. And what's up with everybody in their plans to run away to Mexico or commit a crime there? They know Mexico also has police, right? I need to know how this plan of theirs went. Well, on November 17th, 1958, Lewis and Gus rented a car from a friend for $25 and drove to Olga's apartment. Lewis went and knocked on Olga's door while Gus waited in the car. Just before midnight, 30-year-old Olga, almost eight months pregnant, heard a knock on the door of her Santa Barbara apartment. She had spent the evening playing bridge, knitting, and chatting with two other nurses. They had left the apartment a little after 11 p.m., and she assumed one of them had left something behind. When she opened the door, she faced an agitated young man who told her that her husband, Frank Duncan, was drunk in a car downstairs and that he needed her help to get him upstairs. Olga hadn't seen or talked to her husband in 10 days. Concerned and irritated, she slid on her slippers, pulled her quilted robe tight around her, and followed the man to the car. She saw what she assumed to be Frank pass out in the back seat and open the door to assist. When she did so, Lewis hit her on the back of the head with a pistol. Gus, who had been pretending to be Frank, pulled Olga inside and Lewis jumped in the driver's seat and drove off. Olga was stronger than they anticipated. Though stunned, she was still conscious and began to scream and struggle. Gus beat her over the head repeatedly with the gun, but she continued to struggle. Lewis pulled off to a secluded area, took the pistol, and knocked Olga unconscious once and for all. The hit to her head was so hard that the handle of the pistol broke. Now that she was finally out, Gus used tape to bound her hands together and Lewis continued to drive towards Mexico. That's a twisted way to get her to go out to the car. That honestly would have fooled me if I were in her shoes. 
Yeah, that was such a smart ruse. It would have fooled me too. Sham will tell us how Olga's journey ended after this short break. The killers had planned to take her to Tijuana, but the 1948 Chevrolet Sudan that they had borrowed was in no shape for such a long trip. Instead, they headed south on Highway 101 and turned onto Casitas Pass Road because Gus remembered using that lightly traveled roadway to get to a winery near Ojai. By the time they stopped, they were almost seven miles into Ventura County. It was quiet, dark, and deserted. Lewis and Gus dragged the very pregnant Olga out of the car down a small embankment. They could no longer use the broken pistol to shoot her, so they took turns trying to strangle Olga, switching when they got too tired. When they no longer felt a pulse, because they had forgotten to bring shovels, they dug a shallow grave with their bare hands and buried her and her unborn child near a drainage ditch. Olga was still wearing her wedding ring that Frank had given her. They returned to Santa Barbara and did their best to clean up the rental car before returning it to its owner. The back seat was so stained, they ripped out the blood-soaked seat covers and tried to cover it up by saying a cigarette had been dropped and caused a large burn hole. When they made contact with Elizabeth, they let her know that the task was complete and they wanted their money. She let them know that there would be no money just yet because the police were already questioning her about Olga's disappearance. In truth, she never had the money and never intended to pay them. Wow. First of all, these guys are the worst hitmen ever. Totally unprepared and don't seem to know what they're doing. Secondly, what did Elizabeth think would happen when they killed someone for her and she didn't pay them what she promised? You don't want to piss off the murderers you hired. You would think she would be next since they already did it once. But it's not like they could tell on her. Olga seemed well-liked, so I'm sure someone noticed she was missing. While Olga was discovered missing by a friend and colleague of hers, Adeline Curry, a chief surgical nurse at St. Francis Hospital. She went to Olga's apartment after the young nurse had failed to show up for an important operation. Adeline was alarmed when she found the door to the apartment open. All the lights were on and the bed covers had been turned back, but the bed had not been slept in. She immediately reported Olga missing. The investigation revealed that the annulment was a fraud perpetrated by Elizabeth. She was promptly arrested on charges of bribing a witness to influence testimony, falsifying a legal document, forgery with intent to defraud, and aiding and abetting Ralph Rowe into making false statements under oath. While Elizabeth was facing charges related to fraud, she told Frank that Lewis and Gus had been blackmailing her about the annulment scheme. Her son went to the police intending to get the men arrested. After Lewis and Gus were picked up for questioning about extortion, Elizabeth backtracked and said that she thought it was just a misunderstanding and that she didn't wish to press charges. But it was too late. Police had already made the connection and became suspicious about Olga's disappearance and pressed the two men who confessed and implicated Elizabeth in the crime. After confessing to a Ventura County Sheriff's detective, they led authorities to Olga's grave on December 21st of 1958, saying that if they had known Olga was pregnant, they would not have killed her. After her body was examined, it was revealed that the beatings hadn't killed Olga, and neither had the attempted strangulation. Dirt was found in her lungs, indicating Olga had suffocated after being buried alive. Elizabeth is an idiot. They probably wouldn't have connected her to Lewis and Gus if she hadn't mentioned them to Frank. How could they not have known she was pregnant? She was eight months. I know she was showing at that point. Right? It would have been very obvious by then. I'm glad they were all caught, though. Olga deserves justice. I mean, they buried her alive. 
I'm sure Elizabeth didn't go down easy. Elizabeth, Lewis, and Gus were charged with conspiracy to murder Olga Duncan. Bail was set at $100,000 each, which is equivalent to over $7 million today. Elizabeth entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. She was interviewed by shrinks and she even submitted to a brainwave test, but nothing about her test indicated that she was insane. Dr. Lewis Nash, assistant director at Carmarillo State Hospital, described Elizabeth as a psychopathic personality and pathological liar, but said that she was absolutely sane. On January 30th of 1959, Lewis withdrew his not guilty plea and entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. Gus quickly did the same. And just like Elizabeth, they were found to be sane. Lewis chose to plead guilty and throw himself on the mercy of the court. Gus made the same choice, but Elizabeth insisted she was innocent. At trial, Elizabeth was represented by her dutiful son Frank and famous attorney Ward Sullivan. In fact, Elizabeth and Frank walked in together hand in hand. It was public opinion that Frank was either a complete idiot, delusional, or in denial regarding his mother's involvement in Olga's disappearance. He told reporters that he believed his wife to still be alive. Frank said he had no insight into why Elizabeth had taken the drastic measure of faking an annulment, and he refused to make any comment. I think Frank was both an idiot and delusional, but I still can't understand how he continued to support and be manipulated by his mother after all of that. She can't possibly be alive, Franklin, if they found her body. And that's not how dead bodies work. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Come on, Frank. I know you're a lawyer, not a doctor, but that's basic common knowledge. I'm sure this trial was a big deal. The trial drew journalists from around the world to the courthouse. It was covered by national radio and television. And locally, it was front page all the way, billed as the most sensational criminal case in modern Ventura County history. Ventura County was horrified. A mother-in-law accused of killing her son's wife and her own unborn grandchild. The courtroom was crowded from day one. People lined up starting at 3.30 a.m., toting brown bag lunches in order to get one of the limited seats. There are about 1,000 people in the courtroom and adjoining corridors every day of the proceedings, and many of the spectators were hostile to Elizabeth. One of them even attempted to hit her. One of the most difficult tasks was to find jurors who could be fair and impartial. Many of the prospective jurors revealed that they had already made up their minds and felt that the defendants were guilty. In fact, Elizabeth and Frank received a lot of hate mail including notes like, hope you hang, you should have died before you were born, cut throat, I could kill you, mama's boy, and much more. She filed a motion for a change of venue from Ventura County, but it was denied multiple times. Finally, the jury of eight women and four men was finally seated and the trial could begin. I have no trouble understanding the hate she received. She was the worst kind of person. I don't see any confusion as to why she and Frank received hate mail. He's literally showing no remorse for what his mother did. What did these killers have to say for themselves? The child testimony was gut-wrenching. In particular, Lewis' testimony, as he seemed he wanted to talk. He went into graphic detail describing what Elizabeth had asked him to do and what they had actually done to Olga. Gus was less willing to talk and mostly answered questions with, I don't recall. The prosecution paraded 44 witnesses throughout the court to testify against Elizabeth, including the two hired hitmen, all of her friends, and her ex-husbands. The defense attempted to paint Olga as a less-than-honorable woman, but it failed. Testimony of those who knew her painted a picture the defense could not counter, 
of an attractive Mother Teresa-like person who had gone into nursing to help others, and whose life before she met Frank had been almost saintly. Elizabeth could not avoid the evidence that proved her self-centeredness and lack of truthfulness. One example they gave to show her inability to tell the truth was when she had $18 in her checking account, but she wrote a $50,000 check as a down payment on a half a million dollar apartment house in San Francisco. She then lied about her age in order to marry one of her son's law school classmates as a way to fund the apartment house she wanted. Elizabeth took the stand and tried to say Lewis and Gus were hired by Esperanza because they were unhappy with the services provided by Frank and her husband's case. She claimed that Esperanza first used Lewis and Gus to try to blackmail her, and when she couldn't get them enough money, they killed Olga to get back at Frank. She admitted instead that she had once plotted to tie up and kidnap Frank, though. She felt that if she got him away from Olga, he'd snap back to his senses. However, she continued to deny that she threatened Olga or ever intended to harm her. This lady's too much. She just can't stop lying. If anyone wanted to get back at Frank, they would just kill his mother he's attached to, not his estranged wife. (laughs) Right. Okay, so they put all of her friends and ex-husbands on the stand. What about Frank? Oh, Frank took the stand as well. At the attorney's table and on the witness stand, Frank was not the picture of a grief-stricken husband. Although he testified that his relationship with his wife was one of love and affection, he also admitted that he had not seen or talked to Olga in 10 days before her death. When asked if his mother tried to break up his marriage, he answered, let's just say she hindered its development. He ended his testimony saying, I love my mother and I love her still. During cross-examination, Frank admitted that he dated a woman in San Francisco during a business trip while he was married to Olga. He didn't bother to tell his date that he was married. Apparently, Frank couldn't be fateful even for the six-month duration of his marriage to Olga. What was even more surprising was that Frank secretly married again, this time a fellow attorney during Elizabeth's trial. This marriage, he was very careful to hide completely from his mother. The trial lasted for four weeks, and on March 16th of 1959, after nearly five hours of deliberation, Elizabeth was found guilty. All three were given the death penalty for their murderous plot. While waiting for the jury to come back with a verdict, a guard securing Elizabeth asked her if she could do this all over again, knowing the consequences, would she do it again? She responded with, you bet I would. Nobody but me is going to have my son. This whole family is messed up in the head. This is the worst case of if I can't have him, no one can I've ever seen. Oh, for sure. And I totally believe she has no regrets. All three were convicted and sentenced to death. Were they actually executed, though? Lewis and Gus were sent to prison, but not too long later, they tried to escape by sawing through their cell with blades from a hacksaw they had somehow managed to smuggle in. They beat two guards and held them hostage. Their plans failed when tear gas was used on them and their hostages, and they were apprehended again. On August 8th of 1962, Lewis and Gus laughed and joked their way to the gas chamber, where they were strapped in side by side. Gus yelled out, It's down, I can smell it, and it doesn't smell good. Elizabeth tried to appeal her case for three years. She did receive a stay of execution on the grounds that the media influenced the public and the jury when it came to sentencing, but eventually the stay fell through. Frank continued to fight for his mother until the end. Eventually, her appeals were exhausted and her execution date arrived. Also on August 8th of 1962, Elizabeth was transferred to San Quentin Prison for her execution. 
She asked to be sedated ahead of time, but they refused. For her last meal, she requested a fresh green salad and steak. She walked into the gas chamber with poise and dignity, head held high, her face betraying no emotion, expecting Frank to be there. To her surprise, he was not there because he was too busy trying to get another last-minute stay of execution. Frank begged the judge to spare her life and described her as the best mother a boy ever had. The judge denied the request, but Frank didn't have enough time to get there before the execution. Her final words were, where's Frank? After her execution, Frank moved to Los Angeles, continued practicing law, and never made headlines again. Frank refused to stand up to his obsessive mother, and Olga paid the price. Elizabeth approached so many people with her plans, and yet no one went to the police to save Olga's life. This senseless murder could have been prevented if only someone had been willing to stand up against Elizabeth Duncan. Never take threats of violence lightly. You never know when speaking up might save someone's life. In fact, most crimes need the community's help to solve. For that, there's Crime Stoppers. Crime Stoppers is entirely anonymous, and the process of calling Crime Stoppers is simple. If you have knowledge of a crime, call 1-877-903-STOP, which puts you in contact with the Crime Stoppers Command Center. An operator will answer the phone and take down the information you wish to provide. They'll never ask for your name, number, address, or any other identifying information. You can also place a tip on the website from the Tip Submit button on the main page, or you can download the P3 Tips app. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this case was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Alina. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Conjure Podcast for our question of the week. Steph, what's our Conjure Tip of the Week? Today I want to tell you about Green Aventurine. This crystal is a wonderful protector. It cuts ties with anyone whose energy field is toxic to you and puts a protective shield around you. Wear it constantly to ensure the cords cannot be retied. This sounds like a good crystal to wear in the presence of someone you have to let go of. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until Until next time, stay vigilant, conjurers. conjurers.